Welcome to It Came From The Deep, a narrative podcast series based on the novel by best-selling author Maria Lewis. That's me. And I'm Blake Howard, head of One Heat Minute Productions and the guy behind shows such as One Heat Minute, Increment Vice, All the President's Minutes and more. And more, including Josie and the Podcats, a six-part limited podcast series about the 2001 cult film Josie and the Pussycats, which we worked on together. But we're not here to talk about that today. Today, we're here to break down the latest chapter from It Came From The Deep. We've got fireworks. We've got big waves. We've got burying people with rocks. You would have done what, you fucker? Maria Lewis, welcome back to It Came From The Deep. Bonus episode for chapter eight. Oh, man. I hope by the end of this, I want somebody to do a supercut of all your (laughs) intros, which I feel like started around episode five. And we just cut them all together because... What a jam. It's basically the Blake equivalent of Jason Concepcion starting binge mode every episode by going, yeah! Uh, you've got Jason Concepcion voice register. We really have not capitalized on that until now. So, yeah, I love I Yeah! Love- <laughs> That's the, you got to have the long tail on it. I've listened to so many episodes of Binge Mode. Can you tell? So, so good. Look, um, this was a good chapter. And again, like last week, obviously, we, um, last week's bonus episode, we spoke to Haley. We had a really great chat about all things the Gold Coast and Gold Coast culture and mm. Gold Coast weird culture specifically and mm. like actually materializing the weird because I think some people who might be reading this are like, oh, you know, in any kind of urban fantasy, you can embellish and like some of it's like, no, nah, there's a deer in the waterway in that. And you're like, what? <laughs> no, nah, there's literally a deer, not a metaphorical deer at all. His name was Trevor. I looked it up. <laughs> and so, yeah, we, we, we get started. Um, lot, lots of it happening in the book. We don't have to go to that, but let's just like kick off right now. We get Kaya preparing to visit Amos again. We dive straight into the water. And I think what's really funny that I didn't remember is like, there's like a little conservationist like message at the beginning of this episode in a strange way. A a sea creature getting trapped in a net and being lost, you know, lost from its mother. It's like, it's a word picture that evokes a lot of vulnerability and like, and, and, you know, tugs at your heartstrings right at the top of the show. Yeah, maybe that's the years of doing stories on whales and dolphins being stuck in completely ineffective and ineffectual shark nets that are a placebo because they don't work and they don't protect you from shit. They just kill marine life. Or it, I think it was a little bit of that, but also a little bit of this is a kind of a trope, to be honest, of Mer stories is there's a like a netting scene. This is TV show Siren that is um I want to say it's like a cult hit. I wouldn't say it's like mainstream popular, but like people who know, know. Rena Owens in it. I was like, oh my God, what's for us? Um, but there's a famous, or not a famous, but there's like a key netting scene and sort of like the opening episode of that. And just every Merce story or a lot of those aquatic stories, even Free Willy and stuff, they all have those scenes where there's like a forcible separation between the person's people and the situation that they end themselves up in. So wait, a little bit of wait, wait, you asked for a supercut of my 
stupid introductions to this show. I want someone to design me a free Amos instead of free Willy and have Kaya standing up like with her fist <laughs> extended and him just flying over the top of her. For the love of God, can someone make that? And Mate. I will sell it on our shop on T-shirts. I literally have a free Willy <laughs> visual scene in coming up in chapters. No spoilers, don't want to ruin it for people. But I literally put a scene in the book that is supposed to be that scene from Free Willy, but it happens at the Southwoods <laughs> anyway. <laughs> because I was like, I, I don't know. I love Free Willy. Simon Wins is great. Like, I've, I, you know, lean into your influences. But yeah, I mean, there's a conservation stuff in here. We start to get into more of the mythology. And I don't mean like, we've spoken a lot about like werewolf, um, werewolf, merman stories, the merman mythology and all that kind of stuff, aquatic humanoid mythology. But we're starting to nut out the specifics of how he works and how he functions and also his backstory, which when he talks about being separated from his people and not having very many memories of that, we meet those people in later books and we get more of this origin story fleshed out. But for right now, he's as much in the dark about who he is, where he comes from and who, what and how he belongs as the rest of the readers you know like it makes his a his experience a great vessel of taking people on that journey uh together like everybody's in the same place at this point we talked we've talked about a, that a lot in previous chapters about you know different levels you know thinking oh this is as bad as it can get or these are as high as the stakes can get and then it's like elevated 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 each time and now we're at this point we're pretty much we're, we're at where it's at. The stakes are clear. The highs are clear. The lows are clear. Everyone's on the same playing field or same pond. <laughs> and we're <laughs> kind of moving through together. Yeah, we're on the same level playing pond. <laughs> now, this is another thing that you do in this book, which is really great. And I love watching it play out in your writing that has happened since then. But, you know, there's a couple of kind of great moments that I found in this, which is you know, obviously we get the great fun in this exchange between Amos and Kaya that, you know, she, she gets to go for a ride on a merman, which is like as cool as it gets, you know, so I, think, I think so if good. you've grown up in Australia, like, and especially on the East coast, your parents are always like, you know, off we go up to the Gold Coast and we go to SeaWorld, you can ride a dolphin, you know, like it's, it, there is something stupid. I don't know whether it's like white working class people, maybe, I don't know that are like, like go swim with a dolphin. It's like a huge thing, but like swimming with a dolphin is an amazing thing. And I'll come back to that in a moment. I just want to talk about like a little storytelling device that you do. And you've done it a couple of times in this book and I love it, which is we have kind of known for this whole book that the two South African brothers of the girl who unfortunately passed away in the accident at the beginning of the book were the two perpetrators that came and assaulted Kaya in the assault that happened at and then in the lake. And we haven't been making assumptions for such a long time of like what happened. And I kind of like there is something so refreshing in a genre book where the main character who wants to know the mystery asks the potential perpetrator if they did it and that perpetrator doesn't lie. They just go, here it is. Because there's a beautiful moment in this chapter where the guy is like, what'd you do? Do you want to know? And was basically replies and she's like, yeah. He's like, I drowned. And you're like, yeah, I totally <laughs> killed them. Yeah, I drowned them. I buried them at the bottom of the lake and put some rocks in their bodies. And then even more, he played like... <laughs> Hide the pickle with them, 
You know, like he was moving them around. It was like hot potato. He was Marco Poling with those corpses. So they wouldn't be found by the scuba team. And then the, the lake itself and Kaya wouldn't come under more intense scrutiny. I mean, this isn't a fairy tale. I know this is a story that plays with the conventions of fairy tales and leans hard into those. But I mean, what else would have happened to those brothers? They wouldn't have been fine and left the fuck out. Like yeah. we were talking about Promising Young Woman recently on your Patreon. People should subscribe. It's dope. Um, and how it's constructed aesthetically like a fairy tale, but the actual plot mechanics are extremely entrenched in reality. Therefore, when it gets to the ending, the ending could only have been one way because this is not a fairy tale. And that's the same for the brothers. I mean, like they are mortals and people who come from a human world crossing paths with something otherworldly and from a realm they could never anticipate or imagine the fuck you think's going to happen. Like people get chomped all the, not you. I just mean, but but I, but I think also readers, readers sometimes, especially genre readers who love, whether we love like fantasy novels or you love crime novels, there are certain tropes that you love which is someone being, you know, especially detective fiction, which I know that you and I are huge fans of in both like written and, and TV and films. It's like, sometimes you want the cagey person and sometimes you want someone to ask what happened to that person. And you really want the, I don't know, like whether it's like the vacancy of the, of the response of like, you don't want to know, or, you know, or something like that, because then you you're forced to imagine. Mm. But I also think that it's really cool sometimes when it's like, that vacant response you don't want to know or do you really want me to tell you what happened to them always the inference is hey i'm the guy who killed them what's really nice about an interspatial communication here (laughs) is that he's like yeah i did it i just you know i moved them away from the divers i buried them under rocks that's what happened and so it's really i just i find it really good because what the impact isn't in my mind, and this is what I want to talk to you about as a writer, the impact is in my mind that we are behind in the story. We are right on the front line of the story with Kaya and with Amos. What's still cool though, is that everyone else in that world still needs to know where the fuck those guys are. And they Mm. still don't know. So the tension doesn't remove. You do this really great trick of like, we know exactly what's happened. We're on the front foot. We know who the perpetrators are. We know exactly what happened. But the world around them doesn't because this is a little confessional, a nighttime wetsuit wearing confessional. And it's a really <laughs> cool thing. Um, and so I just wanted to talk to you about like, as you've evolved as a writer, how does that, how does that impulse strike you? Is it like, oh, right now I'm just going to go for it? Because that's what I'm always fascinated by. You're like your instinct to do it. Because I think that this was one of your first books where you were like honing it and much later, Mm. especially books like Wailing Woman, um, the instinct is like much sharper now. And I can, I can almost draw the power. I can draw the, I don't know whether it's the inspiration or draw your like thought process, but I can feel like Wailing Woman sort of like really brings all those things that were evolving in this book out at, at the Zenith. And that's the most recent book that I that I've gone through I've got still got to get through who's still afraid and I don't want to spoil the continuity of the whole series but I just mean I wonder about what your thought process was with some of these decisions was it just like I'm sick of this not I'm not reading this and other fiction I'm familiar with like how, how did it evolve well it's funny you say that thing about the stakes still being high even though certain characters know more than other characters because I'm working on a tv series at the moment where the main character is a woman who 
it gets asked to help essentially solve a murder <laughs> that she's responsible for. So like there's these crimes popping up and they think it's the same person who killed her friend. And so she can't be like, well, I killed the person who killed my friend. So it's like defo, not them. So she has to go back and essentially fake solve the crime, but there are real crimes. So like it's this sort of twisty back and forth of she's on one path and everybody else is on a different path and there's people she's in cahoots with. And I really enjoy that as a storytelling device. But the thing you said about you being able to see a, a clear line, <laughs> there's because it's getting to the end of the Supernatural Sister series, right? There's only two more books coming out. After Who's Still Afraid, it's just The Rose Daughter and then whatever the eighth one ends up being titled. Um, and then that's it. We done skis. And so there's a lot of people sort of Oh my like, God, the series, are you calling it Eight is Enough? Is that what you're going to call? <laughs> I'm calling it The Hateful Eight. I don't yeah. think that's been touched on before. No, never so. touched. I could do a cursory <laughs> Google, but I think we can just let it ride. <laughs> It's totes fine. Um, but there have been people who are going back and revisiting the books and tagging me in their process. And I'm like, oh my God, please exclude me from this narrative because <laughs> it is fucking horrible, truly horrible to see things that people pull out from the earlier books and were like, oh my God, I love this quote. And you're like, cool, it makes me want to kill myself. Um, <laughs> cool, I like just, never... cool, cool, I just threw up. But anyway, that's fine. Cool, like, cool. <laughs> I've literally never read a worse sentence in my life and I can't believe I made that choice. But another part of me is like, good. I want my first book to be my worst. I want my second book to be my second worst. I want my third book to be my third worst. I want whatever the last thing I worked on to be the very best example of what I can do as a storyteller mm. because hopefully then that represents evolution and that represents growth and that is why I got interested in telling stories in different mediums not just you know started out obviously writing non-fiction and then transitioned into fiction and then transitioned into non-fiction film and documentary stuff and then narrative non uh, narrative fiction television and film and graphic novels and i'm just always interested in fucking around with mediums because it gives you new tools in your arsenal but it also i hope helps develop me so that i'm better th at the end of 2020 than i was at the start of 2020 and hopefully by the end of 2021 i'm a better storyteller than i was at the start of 2021 i never want my audience to feel like I don't know. I feel like they might've gone a few steps backwards with this. So like, Oh, their first book was better. I always, I always like that. Like I think of it in the context of people who are making their directorial debuts. And I think it's, it, a, it's, it's a, it's, it's a hard, it's a hard, at first albums, first films, first things you always, the first thing you is always great, see, yeah, it's hard. It almost hurts you, right? Yeah. Like if the first thing is perfect, it hurts you because there's no room to move almost. And, um, and I'm fortunate that I have people like you who tell me that my writing has improved and my storytelling has grown because that's what I've set out to do. Like, I, I mean, we were talking about this. I think it was off air. I can't remember if it was on air. Who knows? It all blurs into one now. But um, <laughs> I got the copy edits back on The Rose Daughter and my editor in London was like, this is the most ambitious book you've ever written. Like it, it is just the things you're trying to do in this are just a different scale to what had been attempted in the past. And that has to do with timelines, but also has to do with like historic 
history shit being waved into the narrative that already has existed for six books before this and just stuff like that. And, um, and I hope that is what I can keep continuing to do, but it came from the deep, did feel like the first place that I really did get to stretch a bunch of muscles and flex a bunch of muscles, but also improve on stuff because the first draft of this was written in first person, like who's afraid and like who's afraid to, and like who's still afraid. You got to keep that shit consistent. Um, and I regretted that. I regretted that choice because it sticks you in the vessel of one character and mm. the structure of those books is they're all first person, but there's two chapters in every who's afraid book that are in somebody else's perspective. And when I would write those chapters, I would find them so freeing and liberating because it gave me the opportunity to give the audience uh, a bigger perspective than what we'd been stuck with. And just because the person telling the story is the person telling the story, that doesn't make them the hero of the story. Yes. And that is, I think, the default for a lot of people. And so when I would talk about Tommy starting off her series as an antagonist and her going on this journey of growth, I think that was like a struggle for people because they're not used to being in the head and the vessel of somebody who's not perfect and somebody who fucks up a lot and makes bad decisions and needs to reevaluate themselves and reevaluate their place that they're coming from and their perspective and gets to the point where like, I always said that she started out the series in black and white and hopefully by the time it gets to the end, it's just all shades of gray. That's what I was attempting. That was the ambition. And it came from the deep in many ways was the beginning of getting to do a lot of stuff like that. But also in terms of the, the sneaky world building, right? Like the first um, time that I was over, like when it came from the deep first was released, I wasn't telling people that it was part of this series. Definitely. I was just like, read it and we'll see, you know, fuck around and find out was essentially <laughs> <laughs> the mantra to, to quote the Philadelphia uh, Flyers mascot gritty, fuck around and find out. Um, but that was kind of the attitude I had. And people started to make the, like the fans who'd been reading the other books and had read the short stories and stuff, recognized those little flags early. But it wasn't until The Witch Who Caught a Death came out which was the book after this, that it was the subtext rapidly became text because I had, it was the first time I got to include a glossary. Yes. And so in the glossary, there is a definition of Selkie and it reads, I'm going to read my own shit uh, to myself. Oh my God. Okay. The source of Mer Selkie, Colin. <laughs> the source of mermaid and merman folklore. Selkies are aquatic humanoids that inhabit any large body of water. Despite some human features, Tribes of Selkie from certain parts of the world have been known to take the form of marine animals like seals, dolphins, and sharks. Um, so they can change shapes depending on pondent breakdown, essentially like aquamorphs, really. So, you know, if you're from a certain Selkie tribe, you can change into a dugong, you can change into a dolphin, you can change into a human. It's not an ability that every Selkie has, but I was trying to sort of tap into some of those um, original folklore accounts about is this a mer person or is this not is like, we thought it was a woman on rocks, but they kind of looked more fishy when we got closer to them. So sort of leaning into the distortion of these accounts of how there was like an underlying theme, but then the specifics would always be a little bit different. And I'm like, well, let's use that then let's like 
use the non-specificity to be the thing that unites so they can change shape and adjust and blah, blah, blah. And selkies and mermaids in, and mer creatures are sometimes completely different entities and some kind, sometimes they're uh, the same and sometimes the traits that define them are the same and sometimes they're different. And I'm like, fuck it, let's just uniform it. Like, let's just make it uniform. This is what selkies are in this world and this are their powers. In the same way, this is what witches are in this world and this is their powers. Is that like a coven of witches, every single witch in this universe has a different power. No witch in the same coven has the same ability. And when they die, that power goes on to somebody else. And the way it manifests can be different. You know, the powers can be very micro in what they do. It can be somebody who has like a magnetic sort of control towards metals or something like that, like X-Men shit. Or it can be somebody who has an affinity with ghouls and an ability to control and communicate with them in a way that other supernatural creatures don't. Or it can be somebody who's like in the case of the witch who caught a death and Opal and Carla Tully, somebody who's gifted with like a technical kind of witchcraft where it spells and potions and things like that. So it was like using the big things, like the big types of creatures and then making up rules for this world that would stay consistent throughout, whether that's selkies, witches, whatever. No, I, I love, I love a glossary for that. And especially because there are lots of, um, there are some things that you kind of are slavishly having to adhere to, but it's cool when you're like working with animals and uh, working with creatures that don't necessarily have as big a history or as uh, that don't necessarily have as many like rules that are like projected onto them. So like with vampires, you know, it used yes. to be like silver bullets and things like that. And you're like, Oh no, you know, now it's wooden stakes or whatever. Like, you know, there are certain different ones for it. You pick and choose different things, but it's just like, you just need to choose your so, thing. That's but, it. Just choose it. And then I'm gonna confess. Good. I'm gonna confess. So I haven't talked to you about this. One time I met a couple of friends at one of the first places I ever worked. I was working in a DVD and distribution warehouse and I went over and hang out with a friend. And my friend's wife was into fan fiction. Mm. And she was into Buffy the Vampire Slayer fan fiction. Mm. Mm-hmm. And she had written or I don't know if she wrote it, but she had like this big bound, much like I've got like your first draft of like, um, who's afraid. Yeah. This like big, what are my of- books? If not Buffy fan fiction, let's no, be no, honest. No. she had this big thing where it was like a Buffy Harry Potter yeah. fanfic. Yeah. that had also stolen liberally from another fantasy series. I really liked by David Eddings, which yeah. is so they call it slash fic. So but- it's like slashing a bunch of shit together. And it slashed it all together. And I remember yeah. reading it and immediately going like, you, like, of course it's like fun and silly and whatever like fan fiction can do. Cause like, you know, some people like adore fan fiction. But mm. also what was really annoying is you were having its cake and eating it too with all of these different characters and worlds rules. They're like, they'd had like, they allowed all the rules to coexist without defining what they were. So it was like mm. really weird of like one character saying this and you're like, what, what, like, when did this happen? I like that you're getting annoyed by the mechanics of it. You're like, I don't care about them fucking on page six. I just need you to clearly define I just need whether to know. mentors exist in this I universe just need or not. To know. Can someone, I, can, someone know. can someone tell me what the rules are? So yeah, it's just really funny that you say that, like how 
how in- instrumental it is to your experience of things. Just that little bit of pre-definition. This is the sand. This is the Maria sandbox we're getting to play in. This is the world we're getting to play in. And and I feel like the whole opening of this chapter is like just like further underscoring like this is the world that we're playing in for this mm. because for this specific species and strain of species of merman slash aquatic humanoid, this is what he can do. And also the fact that he's been around humans a lot more. I also liked that in the context of your universe going, well, these are like shapeshifters and stuff like that. Also, like if they're out to sea all the time, maybe they just stay a dolphin forever. Exactly. And also how would he know? Like he doesn't know what he doesn't know. No. The only other person, and I mean only other person he's ever met <laughs> since he's been, like has had a conscious memory is Professor Waldman, and that's it. So, like, even the big scene that you're talking about. Big ISO energy. Big ISO energy. Big ISO energy. But, like, <laughs> even that scene where you're talking about, she asks him, like, what did you do with it? And he's like, do you want to know? And then he tells her. Amos views things very black and white. These people were bad. They were trying to hurt you, so I killed them. Like, that was it. Like, there's a logical, like, A to B to C and to drowned D. him. Yeah. I dragged him to the bottom it. of the lake, and I put rocks on them. <laughs> You love that shit. My God. You're like, you can't get past that. But, no, but um, it's, what it is, is he hasn't, it's, it's the, it's we in all sorts of different fiction, especially if you've ever read like, you know, crime stuff from the United States that has anything to do with like mafia and stuff like that. Tying someone like giving people concrete shoes, weighing down bodies with rocks. It's fucking everywhere. But what's cool is the function. The It's mm. not what he does. It's the way he does. It. It's like, Oh no, I drowned them. Like they were going to hurt you. So I just, I just drag them to the bottom. You can, like in my head, I'm imagining these guys like thrashing and him just like being completely stoic about it. Just drag to the bottom, put rocks on them while they're still thrashing about and they can't do anything. They're just dead. And it's like, it's so helpless. And he's so just casual about it. It's like, Oh, that's okay. The way that I kind of always imagined it from a practicality point of view, because it's like you come up with these wild fucking scenarios and you're like, okay, but how would that actually work? And that's sometimes the funnest part is trying to like entertain. Okay. How do, how would this actually work? Right. But he breaks one of the brother's wrists and pulls him down below. And it's like to show how strong he is and all this kind of stuff. But I was like, I just see him, like they'd be thrashing around and he'd be like, oh, fuck, can you just like be still for a bit? I'm just trying to kill you. So I totally imagine him like breaking both of their necks and then just like leaving them at the bottom of Blake. But the point I was going to make is that he has never met another human before Kaya. He, up until six months ago, he had only ever been with Professor Waltman. So he's only ever had one person to interact with. So he doesn't have nuance. He doesn't have uh, those shades of gray that I was talking about in the context of Tommy into his like ethical understanding of things. It's I viewed this through a film or a documentary or whatever, or it's something that's been told to me, but he hasn't had the opportunity to watch and the past six months for him, it's like the people around like pull-ups and how they interact and the things they do. That's like the best TV imaginable for him because he's actually got to see people interact for the first time and watch them and observe them and learn things from them. But he doesn't think the way that they think because he hasn't had human interaction. He hasn't had like social conditioning. So there's a lot of stuff like that, that I was sort of trying to weave in there where it's clear that he, even though there's obviously very, very precise and visceral connection between Kaya and Amos that is 
beyond explanation or logic or reasoning or any of that kind of stuff, the way many great love stories are, there's also uh, a separation between them because he hasn't had, he hasn't had people to learn shit with. He hasn't had chances to like say something horrible to somebody hurt their feelings and then be like, Oh, I, they're upset because I said this and this makes me feel this way. Therefore I need to know how to not do that next time. You know, really basic shit. So let's dive away from Amos because we fly through the water. That's all very fun. And I think it's one of the best bits of flourishes. And I think that if people just want to get a bit of levity, we like, needed a levity moment. It was, it was fun. It was good. And if you want to go back and enjoy that, just go back and listen to chapter seven. What I do want to dive into is just some of the um, great sort of surf culture things that you do in this uh, chapter as well, which is like just diving off the rocks which for some people might seem completely ludicrous. Like why would you go to the rocks? Now, what I want to tell you is like surfers are out in the water for a long time and they paddle great distances. And especially on the Gold Coast, the breaks are often hundreds of meters off of the shore. So glad you brought this up. And it's, it's, you just have to understand that like surfers also are like, they're lazy. Like we're, they're, they're a relaxed bunch. I might call myself, we're a relaxed bunch. And if you can have a, a shortcut to getting out, even if it is a dangerous shortcut, there was just something I loved so much about that moment, especially that Storm and, Sh- and Kaya shared, because I have a very distinct, vivid memory of a time that you and I were at a beach together and we were there mm. with a tourist mm. and we went swimming in this, what was like for us, a piddly swell. Like it it may- was at Tamarama, which for anybody who's been to Tama, it's a pretty shite beach, all things considered. But it's also a pretty dangerous beach because there's a few permanent rips there. There's not that much actual distance between the rocks and a headline, a head, a headland type structure. So water and currents move through there more quickly than they do in other places. It's not some, <laughs> it's not somewhere that you should take people who aren't competent in the water. There really. you go. So, so, and it does have a bit of a shit shore dump as well as a rip. So, but the swell wasn't that good. It wasn't that large. And so in autopilot, both surf life saving slash surf kids, you and I just go, like we just like belt through and paddle all the way out and get out the back. And we emerge out of the water almost at the same time. I think you're a little bit ahead of me. And we kind of look at each other and sort of smile, like waiting for the next wave to come through, deciding if we're going to body surf. And the person that was with us was getting battered like they're in a washing machine in the middle of the shore break. And then I went, oh shit. And I swam back in and got them. And it just this moment of the complete, incongruity with between what people's normal experience of like oh that's dangerous and like this it's like no it is just a functional thing that sometimes people do it's just a shorthand and i just was reminded of that moment and i was having a rollicking old chuckle reading that again because this is a really beautiful this is a really beautiful moment in the book because it's actually one of those rare moments for kaya because she's in a shit storm in this entire book um and that's not a pun to say with storm but like it's it's I just love this scene of like her, her dad, her brother, a mm. little bit of respite going mm. out for a surf and actually be like enjoying the exhilaration, getting their big sets, beautiful day. Mm. Like it just, it was just such a nice little reprieve. And I loved everything that you were doing around the writing of this scene and like painting the perfect conditions of the Gold Coast on a, on a great swell day. Yeah, well, Burley Headland specifically where that scene is set. I mean, this is this is the big hard reset for her and her family. This is what the Craigs do. 
this is their bonding time or their bocce or their family barbecue or whatever is we fucking go out and get smashed and like have a bit of a body bash for a wee bit and Burley Headland, often people will um, sit along, it's like a hill structure, it's all grassy, people will sit along there and watch people surf off the headland. And depending on where you are, if you can get a really nice long ride, mm. if it's a good, like clean swell, clean winds, you want to be somewhere where the rocks start, like in that general area where if you were surfing in a straight line towards the shore, you'd be fucked and you'd end up on the rocks. But that's not how people surf. You surf across the wave, right? So for a lot of people, it's like to paddle out there takes a fucking ever, especially oh. if there's a good swell on. It's just like you're going to be duck diving for just for yachts and you'll be exhausted, not exhausted because you want to be out there for a few hours, but it's tiring. And if you can avoid it, you'd avoid it. So you see, and you start to see this like train of grommets just like sprinting up the hill. And I remember being a kid and being like, what are they doing? Sprinting <laughs> up a hill, carrying surfboards. I never understood. And they would go through the running track that cut through at Burley Hailland and then go down onto the rocks, teeter out on the rocks. And then what you would do is you would wait until a wave was just hitting the rocks like had either just hit was just about to and you would jump and you would need this to be either the last wave of a set or in a lull and generally speaking in a lull there wouldn't be enough water so you wanted it to be the last wave of a set you'd but hope you really it was needed, the last wave because sometimes I mean, it's not <laughs> sometimes you it's really not. needed to time it perfectly <laughs> you needed to see what was coming and you can do that from the vantage point of the rocks because if it wasn't the last wave of the set and you dived out and you used the water that was running off the backwash of the rocks and there was another bomb coming, you would be fucked. Yeah, you have fun. to either paddle really quickly and try and duck under there and hope you didn't get pushed back too much or you would end up back on the rocks, which is something I've seen happen so many times, hilariously. There's and a- also so many times unhilariously because people get really hurt that way. On Poop of the Day, that's like one of the <laughs> most, that's me and Blake's favorite like Instagram account. But oh that God. is one of the most common genres of video that ends up on Kook of the Day is people timing the rock dive poorly and either just ending up paddling so <laughs> on pebbles or just eating shit when so a big wash sends them back. There's a great little channel down in Boat Harbour at the south coast of Cheringong, which is a, like a family holiday place for myself. And, and uh, growing up, waves come into this channel in this little harbor and it comes into the channel and when the bigger the swell, the better. Right. And so what happens is you wait, you wait just until the waves coming in and the water's getting deep enough and you jump into the waves and all the kids have a ball jumping in. It's like a little rite of passage. And what you also then have to do is wait till the waves, like smaller sets, like maybe little sort of piddly waves come in and surge through and you kind of ride them up onto the rocks. Now, if I had a Kook of the Day Instagram account, I would watch like all the local kids or the kids who go there all the time would just go in and do it effortlessly, climb up, get in, jump out, whatever. And then you watch like the new people, like tourists go, oh, I want to go and do that. And I've never seen so many people like try and get up the rocks and a wave bash them into the side wall of that channel or like completely underestimate and like get washed up onto the rocks it's just like it is so gnarly but it's such a a key part of that surf culture and it's just really funny like the way you're describing i was like i could see people i could watch kook of the day on instagram and i was just like that's Mm. that's just the world now because we're close to the end of this episode i just want to talk about there's a great there's a whole scene that unfolds kai goes back to her car Chris, her ex, comes and approaches her like mm. the douchebag that he is. 
there's a mm. conflict that aren't Biffo. There's, there's Biffo's a, on. There's Biffo a bit, in the burly car park. A little, a little bit. The which of is, times I watched just, that happen and was involved in that, it was truly <laughs> recreating lived experience. True, truly. A little, little bit of a little bit of brouhaha amongst the lads. There were some but, sick fights there. Some sick shit. I want to hear all about. I want to hear all about it. But I just want to say it's really funny. We're close. We're encroaching on the end of 2020. This might be one of our last bonus episodes before the end of the year. And you wrote a line in this book, which you wrote many years, obviously before 2020. But I feel like it was like, you know, I feel like it's like the 2020 line, which is like, you know, I'm not mad at Storm for getting angry. Like mm. I'm not. But she goes, I'm mad at all of it. <laughs> it was just like, I was like, I'm mad at all of it. I'm not mad at his impulse to do that. I'm not mad at this. I, the whole scene is unfolding, all this shit storm. I'm just mad at all of it. Like I'm mad that mm. I have to come back to my car and this shit has to go down. Like I can't just have like a, a passive, a passive fuck off with my ex because the stakes of two missing persons and a dead mm. a, a, a girl who unfortunately died in an accident and, and him being a suspect and like all, all of that shit. All of it. It's just like, I just loved the line. I'm fucking mad at all of it. It's just like, it felt so, I was like, Oh, this is a moment where I think everyone who is following on this podcast and loves this book is like, I feel seen. I feel seen. Yeah. I'm fucking <laughs> mad at all of it. And you want her to be mad at it too. I think that's a really like cathartic moment for Storm, even though like there's many moments where he's like, he's wanting her to react with anger. He's wanting Mm, her to mm. have an emotive response because that's who he is. But also that's who he has the privilege of being. Women don't have that privilege to just oftentimes not only say what we feel, but react how we feel. We can't like in those kind of environments. You can't, you can't just say, what would you have done? You prick and try and fight him. <laughs> you can't just do Let's that. Let's fucking go. Let's go. On. <laughs> um, but it's a really transformative moment for her because it's the first time she verbalizes her anger. It's always been something she's felt, but sort of like tried to press down and just tried to have forward motion as she thinks about, you know, what's next and what are the positive things I can do? And let me push through this and push through that. And, her just getting to have that flash of a moment to be like, this is fucking bullshit and you're bullshit. And that scene was bullshit. And all of this is bullshit. And this just, it's the first time she's gotten to do that. And I think a big part of it, even though he's not there is Amos because she's realized there's like so much other shit going on. There's so much other stuff going on. The stakes are so much higher and worse. And this is bigger scale than she could ever imagined or envisioned and this is just like such petty small crap that she still can't shake like she's literally having night dms with a fucking merman (laughs) and then by day there's people still being like Uh, wanting to fucking cause a ruckus like it's the last straw for her in in a lot of ways and um she's a very different character i to me in so many aspects you know me very well. And I always react with anger. That's always my first reaction. Is it? To pretty much everything. <laughs> it's something I'm trying <laughs> to work on in therapy with Susan, <laughs> shout out. Um, but it is something that like I have to, I had to acknowledge it about myself and be like, okay, your first reaction, regardless of the situation, the circumstances, always anger. But that is not necessarily an authentic reaction just because you feel it. You need to give it some time, walk it back, and then like 
doubt, look back in anger, you know, just like examine it with less angry eyes. So any angry scene is always really fun for me to write because I'm like, fuck yes. Yeah, you're feel. like, oh, you're like, oh baby, I know this. I know this. Mm. My secret Lots is I'm all shit's good. Yeah. My, because my... it's like, it's just getting her to rage out. Any werewolf shit's awesome. There's a few really good, a bunch of great stuff with Casper where she goes fucking fully postal and the witch you've caught a death. And like when there's the big showdown with the giant spider people like that is just so fucking satisfying getting to have somebody with like a sword arm and just go fucking nuts. Like there's so much good shit like that, that I just thrive writing. And it's the more contained stuff that I, struggle and relate to less so it's like that's that's how you try to build up different characters and how they're different from each other and the way Casper would react to something is different to how Sadie would react is different to how Kaya would react is different to how directly would react and Tommy and you and so on and so yeah that moment was <laughs> deeply enjoyable for me to write well, I just want to say I'm totally not mad at being compared to any of your uh, protagonists. I'm not mad at that. And as we wrap up this episode, may all of your bad exes be dragged to the bottom of a lake and have rocks stacked upon their bodies. It Came From The Deep is a narrative podcast series based on the novel from best-selling author Maria Lewis, read by Sophie Parr and produced by Adam Boys at Thaumaturgy Post Production Services. New chapters release every week with bonus episodes dropping in between with Maria Lewis and myself, Blake Howard, breaking down the plot, inspirations, and writing process. It Came From The Deep is part of One Heat Minute Productions. If you think aquatic humanoids deserve rights to, please like, subscribe, and share with your mermates.